Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We're off to the theater today. Stephen Sondheim's impact on Broadway musicals was revolutionary. Director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company will talk with us about Sondheim's choice of unlikely subjects and his amazing use of language. He invented the phrase, everything's coming up roses, as if it were a cliché that lived in the language forever. Actor Mandy Patinkin said of Sondheim, it was like being in the room with Shakespeare. First, we'll hear from an emerging playwright off to a winning start. The rise of gentrification in urban areas has left many families in crisis, some unable to continue living in their own neighborhoods. A new play at the Alliance Theater, Dreamhouse, addresses the issue of gentrification as two Latina sisters decide whether to sell their family home. Their dilemma raises the question, What is the cultural cost of progress in America? And is cashing in always selling out? Eliana Pipes is the playwright of Dreamhouse and winner of the Alliance Candida National Graduate Playwriting Competition. She joins me now via Zoom, along with actor Darylin Castillo. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, Eliana, first off, congratulations. What were your thoughts when you heard you won the competition? Oh, my goodness. I was over the moon. I was staying with my parents in Portland, Oregon at the time, and we had just had a blackout. And it was the middle of the winter, so I was in my home, bundled up in three layers of winter coats, feeling very bleak. And then this phone call came that I had won the Alliance Candida Prize. And it was just, I was overjoyed. I think I screamed on the phone. I've been professionally interested in playwriting for a really long time. I started writing plays in high school. And I remember being in high school and looking up ways to be a playwright and competitions that I wanted to enter. And I found the Alliance Candida Prize 
way back then. And so it's something that's been in my sights for such a long time. It's really an honor to be part of the lineage of Alliance Candida Prize winners. Oh, we take great pride in it here in Atlanta as well. Can you tell us a bit about the competition itself? Sure. The Alliance Candida Prize is a playwriting prize that's available to people who are in their final year of an MFA playwriting program. So it's a really interesting sort of applicant pool. And yes, it's sort of open to people who are in the top playwriting programs across the country. There are rounds and rounds of readings. And then one thing that really distinguishes the Alliance Candida Prize is that part of winning the prize is getting a production of the play. That's really unique to find in the American theater. There are so many prizes where you get a sort of small stipend and a reading of your play, but it's really rare to find a competition that actually leads to a production and giving the play life. It's a really brave model that the Alliance has pioneered. Oh, it's fantastic. Now, how did you come up with the idea for Dreamhouse? Sure, the play really came from two inspirations for me. The first one was reflecting on the way that my neighborhood was changing as I was growing up. I grew up in a little pocket of Los Angeles that was really transforming, really because of arts-led gentrification. And when I was 13, my family moved, we sold our house, which means that we sort of participated in that process of gentrification. And on one hand, that move was really great for my family. It brought a lot of resources into our life. But on the other hand, that move meant a kind of cultural loss that I didn't really have the vocabulary to understand at the time as a little kid. And so writing this play was really a way for me to sort of sort through the benefits and the losses and the wins and the gains, but also the sacrifices that came with leaving that community. And then the other piece of the puzzle was really moving more deeply into the world of professional playwriting. As a woman of color, I'm Black, white, and Puerto Rican, especially writing Black and Latino stories, when sometimes theaters haven't done the work to get those populations into the audience, I sort of felt like I was being asked to sell my cultural pain for money. And I wanted the money, I wanted the access, I wanted to be in those spaces. And so sort of grappling with that ambition and what it cost me to pursue this industry that I love so much. And all of that sort of complicated, tangled mess ended up in the play. Oh my, there's so much going on on so many different levels here. There's a HGTV-like show in the play. Is there a particular program that actually inspired the plotline? I should ask, are, are you an avid viewer of HGTV? I absolutely am. <laughs> I love home shows. I really do. And I think the sort of whole spectrum of the HGTV home show world influenced me. I can't say there was any sort of one show that this show is based on. But I think there's been a lot of interesting commentary on the way that particularly house flipping can contribute to gentrification. Uh, the show isn't necessarily built on any one model, but it is a sort of like flip it show. And I will say that the show in the play has a lot more sort of surrealism and twists and turns than you'll find on an HGTV show. We start in that sort of familiar HGTV land and then the play just launches off into space. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess for one whose life is devoted to storytelling and narrative, it's logical that you'd be drawn to a format where you start out with 
you know, a less than ideal situation, a house that's run down or in need of updating. And then by the end of an hour, you see you have come through this journey to a happy ending, a beautiful house, whether you're going to sell it or live in it. I, I, I hadn't thought about that metaphor until listening to you speak just a moment ago. Darylin, you portray the character of Julia. What can you tell us about her? Yeah, so Julia is six months pregnant, and she is the younger sister of the two. Uh, The other character is Patricia, the older sister. And Julia is a free-spirited social studies teacher to a charter school of fifth graders. Um, So she has a love for history and a love for culture and, you know, through her process of the show, you know, she's grappling many different things of becoming a young Latina mother now dealing with the passing of her mother and coming back to her hometown and refining a connection with her heritage and her house and more importantly, you know, her sister, her older sister. So Julia's journey is very, very, um, it's very interesting. And I think it's something that a lot of people will be able to connect with. What is her relationship with her sister, Patricia? I think Julia's relationship with Patricia is complicated. It is filled with difficult life situations where, you know, Julia was the one that decided to leave the town and go off and study and see the world and Patricia uh, stayed back. And I think uh, that's a really big part of their relationship that's they're, that they're still working through and still trying to figure out. And, you know, the younger sister going off and studying and traveling and the older sister staying back and taking care of mom and being the caretaker and watching her, you know, pass away and their relationship is pretty tough. They go through a lot. (laughs) Eliana, you mentioned moving from your early childhood home in a neighborhood of Los Angeles to another community that had more resources. How do you address the nuances and complexities of gentrification? in dream house Mm. i think it's a really complex task a certainly hefty task i'm a very ambitious playwright i think it comes through in the play and it's a big task to take on and i think the way that the play addresses those issues takes a really layered approach the play i think is is primarily interested in colonialism and both colonialism in the sort of you know, way that we can see gentrification as a modern day extension of colonialism, but also internalized colonialism and the way that, you know, individuals internalize narratives about themselves and reflect them in their actions and their beliefs about who they are and who they can be. One thing that Darylin did so beautifully is sort of embodying the way that code switching comes sort of into the play and into the world of these two sisters who are sometimes Julia and Patricia, and sometimes Julia and Patricia. And these sort of constant navigation between who you bring into a space and and how you choose to present yourself in a space. And it's not like Julia and Patricia are bad or are selling out. It's just two versions, two iterations 
of who and how they can be. And we see the sort of complications of, of the way that they try to navigate through those spaces. The way that selling the house is sometimes a really wonderful thing for them and sometimes such a massive sacrifice for them. And Daryl also brought up the fact that their mother has passed and the way that that grief is sort of playing a part in their story. And I think there's grief for their mother in the literal sense, but also grief around the history and the past and, and who they could have been. Mm-hmm. In the Hertz stage lobby, there's an exhibit on display during the show. Can you tell us anything about the installation Home? Yes, I'm happy to. I, I will say I wish I knew a little bit more about this, but the Alliance Theater has partnered with a nonprofit organization called We Love Buford Highway, mm-hmm. which is dedicated to uplifting the voices of people in the Buford Highway community which I'm not an Atlanta native, so I won't pretend I know too much about it, but to my understanding is a really vibrant, ethnically diverse and primarily immigrant community. And in this lobby installation home, they've chosen to uplift some voices from the Latino community in the Buford Highway area. Great. Neither of you are from Atlanta, but there's a neighborhood in Atlanta called the Pittsburgh area that has many yard signs on display now, printed with stop gentrification, keep residents in place. Our neighborhoods are not for sale. How do you think Dream House resonates within a specific community? In this case, it would be Atlanta, but Eliana, I wonder if you had cities of a certain size in mind, or just any area where people feel at home, but in fear of displacement. Mm. One thing that I'll, that I'll mention about this production is that this play production began with winning the Alliance Candida competition, and it's actually turned into a triple co-production with two other theaters. Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, Connecticut, and Baltimore Center Stage in Baltimore, Maryland. So actually that sort of theory will get to be tested in practice as I'll see how the play translates to two different cities and means something different in two different states. I loved what you said, any place where people feel a sense of home, but also a fear of displacement. I think that feeling of home and fear of displacement is really universal, especially for people who are socioeconomically marginalized or communities of color. And one thing that's so heartbreaking about this play and so fascinating about this play is that every city has its own gentrification story. Every city in America has a history of redlining just because it was part of federal policy during that time Mm. in our history. And so, you know, in, in a way, there are things that will feel so specific about this play in every place that it travels but that are really universal to every city it could possibly be in. We've made a really conscious decision in the play. There's a, the play takes place in a little city called Ilovia that's becoming Highville. And we've made a really conscious decision to not root it in any one place. I'm from California for a while, it was California. And then when we found out it was coming to Atlanta, we were like, maybe I'll rewrite it and make it Atlanta. But really it's become sort of any town USA because it could be any town in the USA. The Alliance Theater's Candida National Graduate Playwright Competition winner, Eliana Pipe.
Brooks and actor Daryl and Castillo, Dreamhouse will have its world premiere on the Hurt stage of the Alliance, January 28th through February 13th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, friend of the show, director Adam Copeland joins us for a tribute to Stephen Sondheim. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. Thank you for joining us. Since Stephen Sondheim passed away in November, tributes have continued to pour in from those who knew him and those whose lives were touched by his musical theater work. Our theater maven and friend of the show, Director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theatre Company joins us now via Zoom with a tribute to Sondheim. Adam, welcome back to City Lights. Lois, it's a pleasure to be here. So why is Sondheim considered the central figure of musical theatre in the last 50 years? Lois, he both embodied and epitomized almost all of the wisdom and ideas of the first and second generation of American musical theater writers coming out of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He understood all of their ideas. He was able to create those sorts of musicals and do it brilliantly. And he also experimented and took the genre further. He both fully stood on their shoulders, saw a horizon, and went there. So we can talk about all of the things that he embodied and epitomized, as well as some of the ways in which he took the form in new directions and then became sort of the godfather for many new generations of musical theater writers. Hmm. A difficult life. His father left when he was a very young boy. His mother was cold and downright cruel at times. But she had a special tie, a friend who led the very young Stephen Sondheim to an important mentor. So Sondheim 
said the most important relationship in his life was that of Oscar Hammerstein II, who famously was the lyricist and conceiver of musicals like South Pacific and Carousel and Sound of Music and Oklahoma. And so Hammerstein gets a lot of credit for essentially being one of the inventors of the modern musical and a young Sondheim falls under his wing and tutelage. And he said things like, you know, I became a musical theater person because that's what Oscar did. If Oscar had been a physician, I would have been a physician. So this, we can't underestimate the importance of this relationship. Hmm. The first break Stephen Sondheim had as a professional came when he was still in his 20s, and that was to write the lyrics for no less than West Side Story. And it, it was partially through Hammerstein that that happened. He early on wrote a bunch of musicals as a teen and a 20-something person, and he was writing both music and lyrics, and he brought them to Hammerstein and said, isn't this great? And he was pretty sure, you know, with the ego of youth that Hammerstein would say, you're right, let's put this on Broadway tomorrow. And Hammerstein did him the favor, which he constantly speaks about in interviews. Hammerstein treated him like an adult and said, if this is really something that you're thinking about seriously, let's go through this together. And starting from the first page and the first line, he criticized the lyrics, the music, the conception, and in doing so, gave Sondheim a language, a bunch of categories, and a way of thinking about writing musicals that he kept on going and iterating through his early 20s. He went to Williams College and studied composition there. And by the time he came back to New York, he had this vision that he was going to become a musical theater great and had written a few small things. And on the strength of those things, Hammerstein saw that he was moving up in the world and recommended him to his buddies, Leonard Bernstein and Arthur Lawrence, who were in the middle of the search for a lyricist. And even though he was quite young, he impressed Bernstein sufficiently to get him the job. Hmm. So let's listen to some of the brilliance he had on display early in his career, his lyrics for songs from West Side Story. writing lyrics exclusively for West Side Story, we still 
hear how beautifully the marriage of words and music takes place when Sondheim is part of the creative team. Interestingly, he had this ambition to do everything. And so the first time out, he, he wasn't 100% sure he should just be known as a lyricist. And Hammerstein said, look, to work with seasoned professionals like Leonard Bernstein and Arthur Lawrence and Jerome Robbins, you got to take this job. It's, it's going to push you along. So he did, and we can talk about some of the struggles that he had in doing so in a little bit. Then he thought, okay, now that I've done that, it's been a success, I will write both. And proceeded along, and then another opportunity came to write Gypsy, and he thought he was going to turn this down. But again, it was with a bunch of seasoned professionals, and again, Oscar Hammerstein stepped in and said, you know what, you've had the experience of writing a musical with professionals, I'll grant you, but one thing you haven't yet had the experience of doing is writing lyrics specifically for a star, because they'd already hired Ethel Merman. And Hammerstein thought in the kind of arc of Sondheim's career, he should know what it was like to have to build a musical around a star because that's what happens in the commercial theater. If anyone could ever belt out a tune, it was Ethel Merman. Let's hear what may be the most famous song from Gypsy. I had a dream, a dream about you, baby. It's gonna come true, baby. They think that we're through, but baby... So he not only provided this fantastic comment on Mama Rose's excitement for the ambition she had for her daughter, but a real star vehicle with blowing a kiss and listen to those lyrics. Another amazing thing about it is that he wanted to write in a very idiomatic way but use a phrase that actually wasn't in the idiom so he invented this this phrase everything's coming up roses as if it were a cliche that had lived in the language forever and he said he knew he'd really done something when he saw a headline about vietnam in the new york times and the author in in the lead had said something about everything's not coming up roses as it related to this headline. And he thought, wow, that they're taking my invented idiom and throwing it back into the language is really something. And just as an index to his incredible cleverness, there, there are phrases about roses and being a positive thing. And also 
the name of the character is Rose, so the, the lyric works at multiple levels. Oh, that is fascinating, Adam. I didn't know he invented the phrase. Just figured it was in common usage. Mandy Patinkin, one of his great interpreters, said it was it was always when he worked with him like being in the room with Shakespeare and in the way that Shakespeare was so inventive with language so too was Stephen Sondheim and some of the things that he invented then became a part of our language. If you are just joining us this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company. We're discussing musical theater legend Stephen Sondheim. Now, Sondheim experimented with and, in fact, revolutionized commercial Broadway musicals. We don't have time to touch on many, but one of them, which premiered in 1970, is in a revival now, that being Company. What made Company special? Well, let's take a step back and just talk about what standard Broadway fare had been. Certainly not everything, but the lion's share of Broadway hits tended to be romances, musical comedies. They were the equivalent of rom-coms, you know, things people took in a nice show. And they're over the years chatting together, Lois, we've also talked about the Rodgers and Hammerstein template for the hero heroine of the plucky woman who goes up against odds and succeeds. Sondheim, in terms of taking a leap, wanted musical theater to take on more contemporary subjects, to be very much of the moment and be dealing with the concerns of the urbane urbanites that he was around. So one of the ways in which he was revolutionary is by creating a success for things like company, which are very sophisticated with very smart sophisticated urbanites talking about very contemporary issues, an ensemble. It was taking musical theater away from a previous template of what it had to be and really pushing it into the modern era in that sense. Yeah, and again, it's important to realize the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. This premiered in 1970. Exactly, like people sitting around a living room talking about their angst and their sex lives and their marital discontent, etc., fears of commitment. These were not perceived as subjects for a commercial musical back at that time. And we're talking about the end of a decade of turmoil, of violence, of assassinations, the war in Vietnam, that Rodgers and Hammerstein template was not going to work. Agreed. In, in this time, but Sondheim brought it on. Let's hear a snippet from Company. What do you have in mind? Let's go with this at the t- that shows up at the top of the show. Bobby. Bobby. Bobby, baby. 
Bobby. Why does this song at the opening of Company so well suit the new urbane musical? I think that one of the things that he was playing around with is how people deal with relationships and the nuances of how how you might make a commitment, feel skittish about commitment, feel what have you achieved. So the, the show opens on this character Robert's birthday and we're diving right into the idea of an interior scene of a character's birthday and having a bunch of people having different opinions about him and he's got different opinions about everybody in the room and it's it's just not you know it's not a brassy we're not around a monument we're not we're, there's no revolve on the stage there's no it it's breaking the mold of what the big brassy opening number had been. Hmm. Adam, I see you have chosen a song that is different from what I might have selected for company, The Ladies Who Lunch. It was just a killer for me. You have a different song. Well, one of the things that I find incredibly fascinating about this era of Sondheim's work is he keeps, if, if you think of, you, you had asked about 1970, and again, think of where he's coming from. The, the form had been that people got so emotional, there was nothing to do at that point but break into song. And even in 1970, there was a sense that that was a little stale. We we use words like cheesy now, the sense of what what had felt fresh for a couple of generations was starting to feel cheesy. So one of the things you see Sondheim doing through the 70s is asking questions about what he could make a musical about that would feel fresh again, that would not feel cheesy. And so having contemporary relationships and or he did a musical called The Little Night Music mm-hmm. that, again, adult relationships and all of the nuances thereof. He, he did a very experimental idea of having a musical go in reverse where you meet the protagonist and you, you kind of don't like the protagonist very much. And by the end, you see the protagonist and the, the people around them as youthful idealists called Merrily We Roll Along. That's a big ask for an audience in this era to love and, and fall in love with a musical where you're both chronologically putting it backwards. I don't, that hadn't been done at that scale. 
and you're starting with somebody you don't like very much. So again, he's playing with the form. And then he continues this through his whole career. I mean, we can talk about later, but the idea to do a musical about people who had shot the president or at least tried to sh kill and shoot the president assassins it's very experimental you wouldn't pitch it and have a bunch of producers say yes that's gonna make us a million bucks a musical no less exactly so again i i, I think that part of the zeitgeist of the moment was experimentalism and he embraced it and in doing so with with some of the successes of these pushed the form forward, he would probably listen to this and hear successes, successes. Some of these were huge box office failures. But over time, they've become canonical and the culture has caught up to him. You know, part of these revolutions meant that at every musical theater program, you know, a friend of mine studied musical theater at, at Michigan. She said, you could almost say that the program was a Sondheim program because there were a couple of generations for whom having somebody that smart writing commercial musicals meant that students could really dive into it. There was 30 years where people just bowed at the altar of Sondheim and learned everything there was to know about every one of his musicals and then also knew all of the lore about the struggles that he had. And he was so articulate in interviews and books and memoirs and biographies about these struggles that people would study how he put together these classic things. So another part of why he's so important is he's constantly referenced if somebody is struggling with something there's usually a Sondheim anecdote about a parallel challenge in a musical that he came up against and then wrote very articulately about what he was thinking about and how he solved it. Hmm. The first commercial success that he achieved on his own writing both music and lyrics was a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Brilliant show. And, you know, if there's no business like show business is an anthem for musical theater that, that Irving Berlin wrote earlier. I think Comedy Tonight is a close runner-up as an anthem. Do you agree? I love it. Let's hear a little of it. Something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight, something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight, nothing for kings, nothing for crowns, bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns, whole situations, new complications, nothing portentous or polite, tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight. Oh, and the comic genius of Zero Mostel. How fantastic is that? Yes, and let's, again, talking about this notion that generations studied every little bit of Sondheim's successes and struggles. His struggle with creating this is part of theater lore. He wrote a number that he thought would work, 
and the director was lukewarm on it and in the olden days as such uh, they would try out musicals in new haven and washington dc before they went to broadway because of the scale of the investment and in the various trials this number wasn't hitting and sondheim kept banging his head against the wall because he knew what hammerstein had taught him that hammerstein's dictum was that if you had properly created an opening number an opening number that both captured the premise and the promise of the musical that that showed what kind of tone it was going to have who the characters were hammerstein would joke that you could essentially read from a phone book for the next half hour and an audience would still have a good time if you did the opening number right and Sondheim and the team was not feeling this opening number. So they thought maybe it was in the music. The director kept saying, we need a more hummable tune. So Sondheim <laughs> then went and created a super hummable tune, and it still wasn't quite working. They felt that it was sort of light and breezy, but it didn't quite capture the what they wanted. They didn't want it to be light and breezy so much as low and vulgar comedy. <laughs> And so he tweaked it again and made it hummable and also took most jokes out of the lyric with the idea that the staging and the comedians doing it would make it hilarious. And the mixture of giving the, the performers the space and the director the space to create jokes and something hummable enough to capture the tone launched it and it became a huge hit. And you probably even heard in Zero Mostel's space, and sometimes there you, there would be applause or laugh. Zero Mostel is making ridiculous facial grimaces. <laughs> There's other goofy things happening on stage, and that's partially why it works. Director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company. We'll continue our conversation about Stephen Sondheim's musical theater legacy in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for joining us. If you are just tuning in, my guest is director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company. We've been discussing musical theater legend Stephen Sondheim. Here, Adam Copeland explains the inspiration behind Sunday in the Park with George. Can you imagine, I mean, going into a pitch meeting and saying, we're going to do a big budget musical about the painting of a pointillist painting during the French Impressionist era. I mean, <laughs> like halfway through the sentence, you can imagine most producers like falling asleep in their cup of coffee or something like that. And it, it proved to be a, a modern classic. Let's, let's hear the opening number from that. George. Why is it you always get to sit in the shade? While I have to stand in the sun. Hello, George. 
There is someone in this dress. A trickle of sweat. The back of the head. He always does this. Now the foot is dead. Sunday in the park with George. One more. The collar is damp. Beginning to pinch. The bustle slipping. I won't budge one inch. Who's at the zoo, George? Oh, Who's at the, the zoo? amazing Bernadette Peters, who was a muse to Sondheim throughout much of his career. What's extraordinary here? So, to open up a musical where you have somebody singing in this kind of disjointed way where she's simultaneously wanting to, you hear her, first of all, you hear what's in her brain. You hear her inner monologue. And it's very herky-jerky. She's talking about the sweat on the back of her, inside of her dress. She's talking about how hard it is to be a model. But she's also clearly in love with George. And so we're immediately, we talked about this idea of the premise and the promise. We're, we're introduced to a world where we know that there's this going to be this major character that doesn't think in straight lines. We know that their love is going to be in play. We also know that in some way their impressions of the universe are going to be as important as what we actually see. I grew up in Chicago, as you know going to the Art Institute of Chicago from the time I was a very young child. And this painting is one of the iconic works in that museum's collection. Who would imagine the point of view of the model in that bustle? I can't say how many times I've seen images of it, but to think about her perspiring as she stood for it. Oh, it's brilliant. Now, among Sondheim's greatest hits, perhaps his biggest hit was the song from A Little Night Music, which was actually based on a Swedish film, a film called Smiles of a Summer Night, directed by Ingmar Bergman. He wrote this song specifically for the actor Glynis Johns, who most audiences will recognize as the mother in Mary Poppins, the suffragette mother. So if you can picture her, she was the lead in a little night music. And they had cast her because she was a brilliant actress first. She could sing. She was what you might categorize as an actor who could sing, not so much a singer. And so one of the things that is clear in virtually every single Sondheim song is how much thought and craft and care he put into it and how much he knew going in in terms of what would make something work. And so in this case, he completely signed off on having cast Glynis Johns. However, 
he was concerned that if he wrote a big number for her, similar to what he had done for some of the other lovers in the piece, that her facility with singing would be in high relief, meaning the other singers could belt out long notes on vowels and hold them, and they sounded lustrous and beautiful. And she sounded a little thin when she tried to do that. And immediately you thought to yourself, huh, she's not really a singer so much. So he thought to himself, what kind of song could I write for her where that wouldn't even be in play? Where the very way that the lyrics work would only play to her strengths. And so he was thinking about that and he thought, huh, questions. Questions, if you make it, if you build a song around questions, you're not going to put the performer in a situation for long, extended, sustained notes because it wouldn't make sense in the context of asking a, a series of questions. So, in a sense, his biggest hit, Send in the Clowns, was built around the parameters of. Uh, you could say almost a limitation. How can I write a song for somebody who's not the best singer in the world? And isn't it funny that it turns out it's his biggest hit? Isn't it rich? Are we a Sondheim wrote to the strengths of Glynis Johns reminded me of something similar with giving actors who speak beautifully songs and specifically questions. And I immediately thought, as you were talking about that, I immediately thought about Rex Harris in in. Why can't the English teach their children how to speak from my fair lady? I, I think that um, we have a generation of people who were so practiced. I, I don't know that there are as many, well, there certainly aren't as many Broadway and West End musical theater stars. And Sondheim came out of a generation and was really you could argue the a part of the last gang that was thinking so specifically about writing musicals for these people who their personalities or their talents were perfect for the show at hand and they were part of the deal going in and as a result you had to craft it so that their strengths 
shine bright. And it is true for Lerner and Lowe with My Fair Lady and Rex Harrison. I mean, he can he can talk and keep rhythm, but you wouldn't want him to sustain a note very long. Director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company on the astonishing musical theater legacy of Stephen Sondheim. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the Hot Chocolate New Play Festival in Atlanta, continuing this weekend at Roll Call Theater. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Writes Us. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.